everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Nicole, and I'm joined here again by the lovely Journey and Rebecca. This week, Journey is going to be telling us all about the case of Casey Anthony, and then Rebecca will be educating us on the science of odor analysis, and hopefully um, there's going to be some good debate about this science, so I'm very excited for that. But I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised, as there are detailed descriptions of child death, sexual violence, and suicide in this episode. And now with that um, all covered, I would like to pass the mic on over to Journey to tell us a little bit about, well, hopefully a lot about this case. And I know the name, I just don't know specifics, so I'm quite excited for this one. Yeah, it should be good. Uh, I didn't really know a lot about her when I started researching either, so it was kind of interesting to kind of dive down the rabbit hole. Um, But yeah, so I'm sure most of you have already heard about her like we have, but there's so much to unpack. Um, So Casey Anthony was born on March 19th, 1986. Her parents are Cindy and George Anthony, um, and she was born in Warren, Ohio, However, this story takes place in Orlando, Florida, and she never graduated high school, but she manipulated her parents into thinking she was going to graduate, and when her mom, Cindy, called the school to confirm graduating details, she was told that Casey didn't actually have enough credits to graduate, and instead of reprimanding Casey, Cindy just went along with the lie and continued planning Casey's graduation party like nothing had changed. And they just completely ignored the fact that she never graduated high school. And so this is kind of like the first major example of Casey's ability to manipulate and lie with ease, which we'll see is a common pattern throughout the um, throughout the episode. And so when Casey was 18 years old, she had passed out at a party and ended up pregnant. She said she woke up and felt like she had just had, quote unquote, forcible sex. And then on August 9th, 2005, she gave birth to her daughter, Kaylee, when she was just 19 years old. And so Kaylee's father has never been publicly identified. And Casey doesn't even know who he was as a result of that party, which is kind of horrific. And then on June 16th, 2008, Casey allegedly left her family's home with her daughter, Kaylee, and didn't return for a month. And so this isn't necessarily unusual because she wasn't living there at the time, but a lot of the sources kind of went back and forth about her living at her parents' house. And so I have a timeline for the day because this is the day that her daughter, Kaylee, went missing. And so at 7 a.m., Cindy Anthony left for work before anyone else was awake. At 7.52 a.m., there was activity from Casey Anthony's MySpace account and some research for shot girls costumes for her boyfriend Tony Lazaro's nightclub events that were happening in the near future. At 7.56 a.m., Casey's AIM account was used to chat on the computer. They don't specify what the chat was about. Um... At 12.50 p.m., um, according to George Anthony, her father, Casey left the house with Kaylee, and both of them were wearing backpacks. And so the events after this uh, time are heavily disputed because no one really knows what happened. 
So there's activity on Casey's AIM, MySpace, and Facebook accounts on the home computer from 1.39 to 1.42 p.m. And then, yeah. When you say activity, is this like activity from Casey or is it just like notifications in like group chats or group chats a thing? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. So... They don't know if it is from Casey because it's on their family computer, so anyone has access to it. But someone was using her AIM, her MySpace, and her Facebook at that time, so it must have just been open in a browser. Okay, and then messages were being sent to and from supposedly Casey's account or from Casey's account. Okay. Yeah, they're not necessarily like nefarious accounts, but or chats. Just like they were open, she was talking to someone or. Yeah, it was just open. Okay. Yeah. And then, so from 1.44 to 2.21 p.m., Casey was on the phone with her friend, Amy, who is Zanga. And then at 2.30 p.m., George Anthony testified that he left for work at this time. And Casey later said he didn't work very far um, from their house. And then at 2.49 p.m., Casey Anthony's cell phone connects with a tower closest to their house, and the family computer is activated by someone using a password-protected account that was most often used by Casey. So I don't know if you guys remember, like, in the really old Windows, you'd have, like, the, like, everyone's family names, kind of like when you log into Netflix, and then you'd choose, and you'd go open up your own, like, um, desktop yes, kind of thing. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. So, that's what they mean when like opening a password protected account. So they just like went into Casey's account, but everyone like shared their passwords and stuff. So it really okay. could have been anyone. So it was kind of just like the main home account. Mm-hmm. Just it wasn't under like her, her personal laptop. It was just okay. like yeah. on the family computer, they clicked on Casey's icon. Okay. Um. So then at 2.51 PM, a Google search is made for foolproof suffocation with suffocation being spelled wrong. I don't know why that's important, but it was included in the article. Oh. And, yeah. So, 2.52 p.m., there's activity on Casey's MySpace. And also at 2.52 p.m., um, Casey answers a phone call from Jesse Grund, who is her ex-boyfriend. And he says that this conversation was really weird because Casey told him that her parents were divorcing and she had to find a new place to live. But it was my understanding that she wasn't living there to begin with. So I don't really understand why that's important. And then at 3.04 p.m., Casey hangs up with Jesse Grun to answer her father's phone call. The defense says that the 22nd call from her father was to tell her, quote unquote, I took care of everything. I've disposed of the body. Don't tell your mother about any of this after he got to work. And so I was listening to a podcast about this and they played an audio recording of a man saying that. And I don't know if that was her father because that's pretty like damning evidence or just like it's not good to hear him say that. But I don't know if it actually was him saying that or if it was the host of the podcast. Um, But that was kind of the gist of the phone call if that's not what he said or that's what they think they said. And so then in the documentary um, that came out in 2022 about Casey, um, she argues that they should have gotten her father's cell phone records to see where he actually called from at this time because she said that his work is close enough that he could have been the person to search foolproof suffocation and then drive close to his work and then call her um, to kind of suggest reasonable doubt with her. And then at 350. 
no, sorry, at 3.34 p.m., Casey called her current boyfriend at the time, Tony Lazaro, but he didn't answer. And then between 4.10 to 4.14 p.m., Casey made six phone calls to her mom, and none of which were answered. Um, in between phone calls, her cell phone pings that she was on her way to Tony Lazaro's house. And then at 7.54 p.m., her and Lazaro are seen entering and walking around casually into a blockbuster, and Kaylee is not seen with them. So on June 23rd, 2008, Casey and her then-boyfriend, Anthony Lazaro, backed into the garage at her parents' house and took some gas cans for her car, which was out of gas. And the neighbors remember her car being backed into the garage, and some suspect that that's when they transferred Kaylee's body from the trunk of her car to where her body was found. Um, but no one knows and we can't prove it. So the next day, George confronted Casey about stealing the gas cans and she grabbed them out of her trunk and threw them at him. And he didn't, he said he didn't notice an odor other than gasoline coming from her trunk at that time, which is important. So then we fast forward to July 15th, 2008. And George Anthony, Casey's father, learned that her car was in an impound lot, and so he went to go get it out. And both George and the impound yard attendant noticed a strong smell coming from the trunk, and they both later stated that it was the odor of a decomposing body. And so um, George and Cindy returned the car to Casey later that day, and they asked to see Kaylee because they hadn't seen her in about a month. And over this month, Cindy, the grandmother, had requested to see Kaylee, but was given excuses as to why she couldn't. So Casey would say that she's too busy on a work assignment or that Kaylee was with a nanny. Um, however, this nanny, she was a real person, but she didn't actually know the Anthony family and wasn't working for Casey. Um, it's pretty suspicious. So, <laughs> very suspicious. It was so weird. And I then, have a delayed question. Sorry. Okay. How did the impound the impound guy and George Anthony know what decomposing bodies smell like? That's a really good question, and I don't have the answer for that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I think George Anthony used to be a police officer. Gotcha. And then the impound guy was just like, yeah, that, yeah, that could be like it. Yeah, smells like a dead body. Yeah, definitely yeah, dead for body. Sure. <laughs> okay. I, think it was, I think they were just like, oh, wow, this smells really bad. And then... During, like, the trial, they were like, would you say that smells like a decomposing oh, body? And they were yeah. like, yes, I would. I, f I feel like that's maybe more what happened. Okay. Um, yeah. But, I, again, I don't know. So, um, when they got to Casey's house, Casey admitted that Kaylee had been missing for weeks. So, Cindy called 911. And she told the operator that Kaylee had been missing for 31 days and that, quote, there is something wrong. I found my daughter's car today and it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car, end quote. So, yeah, again, I don't know how Cindy knows what a dead body smells like. But, yeah, so um, Casey also talked to the 911 operator and tells her that Zenaida Fernandez-Gonzalez took Kaylee. Um, and so that's the nanny that um, Casey said was looking after Kaylee, even though she wasn't. So in the 31 days before Kaylee was reported missing, we see some very unusual activity from Casey. So on the 20th of June, she participates in a hot body contest. 
And then on July 2nd, she got a tattoo that reads Bella Vita, which is Italian for beautiful life. And Casey said that she had to keep up appearances during this time so that people wouldn't suspect anything was wrong. And that's why it didn't look like her um, activities changed while her daughter was um, missing. Again, very weird. And so during the investigation, Detective Yuri Melik found discrepancies in Casey's signed statement. And some of them include that the nanny Casey told them Kaylee was with had never met their family. Um, Casey also told investigators that she had a job at Universal Studios, but that was a lie that she'd been telling her parents for a little while. And so investigators actually took Casey and her parents to Universal Studios and were like, show me your office, like take me to your job. And so Casey walked them around the building for 25 minutes before she admitted that she didn't have an office and had been fired a, like a year or two before. So she went on for 25 minutes and then at like mm-hmm. the 25 minute mark, she was like, hmm, maybe they'll suspect something. Let's, yeah, let's get out of this. Well, and she, she like sounds like, around, a, like a compulsive liar. Like she just yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so compulsive liar. And she was even like walking around, like waving at people and being like, hi, how are you? And they would like wave back, but it was like a wave of confusion, like, why are you waving at me? You got fired a year and a half ago kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So um, Casey was arrested on July 16th, 2008, and was charged with giving false statements to law enforcement, child neglect, and obstruction of a criminal investigation. She was denied bail because she had shown, quote-unquote, woeful disregard for the welfare of her child. There was a bond hearing on July 22nd, 2008, where the judge changed his mind and decided to set a bail amount at $500,000. And one month later, on August 21st, 2008, she was released on bail. And so her bond was paid by bail bondsman Leonard Padillo with the hopes that she would cooperate and help them find Kaylee. And his nephew later said in an interview that he actually regrets paying her bail and thinks um, he should have just let her stay in jail during that time. Um, I don't know why. I can't remember why. I don't remember if he said um, a reason why or if he just said that. But on August 11th, 12th, and 13th, 2008, Roy Cronk called police about a suspicious object found in the forest by the Anthony home. On August 11th, he was told to call the tip line by the sheriff's office, but he never got a return call. On August 12th, he called the sheriff's office again, and this time he was met by two police officers. And he told them that he had seen something that looked like a skull near a gray bag. And an officer conducted a search that day and said that he didn't see anything. And then I wasn't able to find out what happened on August 13th, but I would imagine it's more of the same things. And then on September 5th, 2008, Casey was released on bail again after being fitted for an electronic tracking device. Her parents posted her bond of $500,000, and she was arrested this time for writing checks on her friend Amy Huizanga's account without her permission. She had been, yeah, writing checks from her friend's checking account without her permission, and so that's why she was arrested in September. And then later, 10 days later, on September 15th, she was arrested again and then released on September 16th for check fraud charges, fraudulent use of identification, and petty theft. 
and she was fitted again with a tracking device, which doesn't seem to be working. Um, so 10 days later, on September 25th, Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez files a defamation suit against Casey, which Casey wins somehow. And I have a quote from the judge with like the deciding factor, and it does not make sense. And so it goes, there is nothing in this, sa- this statement to support Zenaida's allegations that Casey intended to portray the nanny as a child kidnapper and potentially a child killer, end quote, said the judge when ruling in favor of Casey. And I would like to argue that that is exactly what she did by blaming her child's like missing on this person. Like she was intending to portray her as a kidnapper and a killer. Like maybe not a killer, but definitely a kidnapper. But like why? Well, there's no other reason to accuse someone of doing a crime that severe if your intentions weren't to like yeah. make them look bad and go through with that kind of stuff. Like th- to me, there's no other option. Like that's sole, the sole purpose. Yeah. Like I would definitely argue that Casey was defaming Zenaida's character yeah, 100%. And her life would definitely have been affected if people thought she kidnapped a two-year-old. Yeah. So I do not understand how she won that case. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So on October 14th, 2008, Casey was indicted on charges of first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter of a child, four counts of providing false information to the police, And she was arrested and held without bail this time. And then on October 21st, 2008, the charges of child neglect were dropped because they figure that Kaylee is already dead, so the charge is no longer legally appropriate. Um, I don't fully understand that. Yeah, because have people not been charged for child abuse on a child that has already passed away? See, that was my understanding. Like, I thought... I didn't realize that that kind of like canceled out if the child had died. That doesn't really make much sense. I mean, it does, but also it feels like the worst form of neglect would be resulting in death. Yeah, I completely agree. Absolutely. (laughs) So yeah, again, I do not understand how that charge got thrown out. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that got thrown out. And then on October 28th, Casey was arraigned and pled not guilty. So on November 8th to 9th, 2008, there was a grid search performed to search for Kaylee, but they didn't find anything and nowhere would tell me where they actually searched. So I'm not sure they were looking even close to where her body was eventually found. And then on November 15th, the family hired a private investigator named Dominic Casey, who searched the area where um, Kaylee was later found And so he videotaped his search and the area was under several inches of water at that time. So that could have also been why that grid search didn't turn up anything. And the family's attorney denies that anyone asked him to search there specifically. And he says that a psychic gave him a tip to look there. And then on December 11th, 2008, Roy Kronk calls the police again. And this time the police came and searched the area They found the remains of a child in a trash bag and they recovered duct tape, which was hanging from the hair attached to the skull. And there was some tissue left on the skull. 
and they searched for four more days and found more bones in the wooded area near the skull. And then on December 19th, 2008, medical examiner Jan Garavaglia confirmed that the remains were those of Casey Anthony through DNA testing. Uh, or sorry, the remains were those of Kaylee Anthony's through DNA testing. And her death was ruled a homicide and her cause of death was listed as undetermined. And so in 2009, the court decided to not seek the death penalty. And so, and Casey is required to attend every hearing. Um, George Anthony actually attempts suicide and the defense team tries to get the murder charges thrown out because the state allegedly failed to preserve evidence in the case, which feels like a giant thing um, that maybe should have been addressed. Um, and then in 2010, Casey pleads guilty to 13 fraudulent check charges. Um, her murder case gets a new judge and he allows the prosecution to seek the death penalty. So now this is a death penalty case. And so the trial began on May 24th, 2011 with a jury of five men and seven women. And the prosecution is seeking the death penalty, like I said, and they are alleging that Casey murdered her daughter using chloroform and then duct taped her mouth and nose to suffocate her. They also allege that Casey then left Kaylee's body in her trunk for a few days before disposing of it. And they allege that she did this to free herself from being a parent and used her partying while Kaylee was missing to kind of back up their claims. And so they had 59 witnesses for 70 different testimonies. And I go into some of those a little bit later on. And the defense argues that Kaylee drowned in the family swimming pool on June 16th, 2008, and that George Anthony disposed of the body to cover up for Casey. And, and so they're arguing that Casey lied about what happened because she came from a dysfunctional upbringing, which included being sexually assaulted by her father and her brother. And so she was used to lying about her pain and having to like cover up what she was feeling. And so the defense didn't actually present any evidence for how Kaylee died, like to support her drowning in the pool. And they didn't have any evidence to support Casey's sexual abuse as a child. Um, they also kind of questioned Roy Cronk's motives and suggest that he moved the bones from somewhere else. But if that was the case, how did he get the bones of Kaylee's body's body anyways? And so the defense called 47 witnesses for 63 different testimonies and Casey did not testify. And in the trial, there was 400 pieces of evidence presented and I'm not going to go into all of them, but I am going to discuss some of them. And so the first is that they recovered a strand of hair from the trunk of her car, which was microscopically similar to hair on Kaylee's hairbrush. And this hair showed root banding, which is when hair roots form a dark band after death, indicating that it was from a dead body. And I actually didn't know hair did this. I found that very fascinating. Yeah, um, I've never heard of that before. Mm -hmm. Same. That's so neat. Does right? it happen in every case? Do you know? Um, I think so. This was the first case that the witness they had um, testify on this. It was the first time she's ever testified on it. Um, but she has seen it in other, um, situations, but they've had it from a known body. So they like know who the person was and they were kind of able to like look at the root right from the person. 
Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was like a specific condition, like environmental factor maybe had an effect. Yeah, uh, as far as it, I know, it's not, but I didn't okay. look too far into it. Well, if any of our listeners knows more, let us know. Yeah, let us know. We want to learn um, with you. And then we, <laughs> sorry? <laughs> oh, I just said we want to learn with you. Yes, definitely. Um, so then they mitochondrial DNA tested the hair and they were able to link it to Casey and Cindy. But the only way to fully know who the hair belonged to would be to nuclear DNA test any flesh attached to the root. But there wasn't any flesh attached to the root, so they couldn't definitively prove that this hair was from Kaylee. And so there was also air sampling done. And there was a specific procedure called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, or LIBS, performed in the trunk of Casey's car, which showed chemical compounds, quote, consistent with a decompositional event. Investigators stated that the trunk smelled strongly of human decomposition, but that was not specified on a lab scale. And this process has also not been affirmed by a Daubert test, so I don't know why it was um, allowed in court as evidence if it hasn't been approved by the test that allows evidence in court. But whatever. So the same group who performed the LIVS test also stated that there was chloroform in the trunk as well. But in later testimonies about air samples, Dr. Ken Furton said that there is no consensus on what chemicals are typical of human decomposition. And the judge ruled that the jury wouldn't get to smell the air samples taken from the trunk of Casey's car, which I think was a good ruling on the judge on the judge's part. Um, so there was also seven. What? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just like I have questions that pop up, and then I don't remember if you've already mentioned them. But like, how do you gather air samples of smells? I'm literally just picturing someone with, like, a mason jar just, like, scooping the air in the trunk. Yeah. Like, me, because I have no idea. But there's... I go a little bit into it later. Okay. But, okay. 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 Good. But, like, I couldn't find a lot of information on specifically, like, air samples. Yeah. So, we'll see. Because I'm... I also just picture, like, the mason jar whooshing around. <laughs> yeah. Because the only I thing like I can think of... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay, I feel like there's definitely a way that they can do that because I feel like they air sample things like outside of this case, like to see if there's any toxic elements in it or like if the pollution's a certain level, but I have no idea how they actually do it. Okay, I have a question and a statement. I'll go with my statement first. The only thing I can think (laughs) of is like, remember in, um, we were doing forensic chemistry I think it was and we went into that side lab doing certain tests and there was this study going on on air samples by plants and they had like a really small microphone looking thing set up do you guys remember that vaguely like that's the only thing I could think of I never understood how it took samples but that's like Mm -hmm. maybe they have this little microphone doohickey that samples like the composition of the air yeah that's possible Um, i also just found that uh they use gas chromatography mass spectrometry that's such a mouthful um Mm -hmm. yes by like collecting it using like vacuum containers so like it sucks the air into it and traps it oh okay yeah that would make sense as well yeah 
Yeah, so if there's anyone out there who knows how to take yeah. an air sample, please let us know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I forget my question, yeah. so carry on. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sure it'll come back to me. No, it's okay. I knew that was going to happen, but okay, we it'll come back to me. Sounds good. So there was also 700 pages of documents related to the Anthony case, and these included records of Google searches of the terms neck breaking and how to make chloroform found on a computer that was accessible to Casey. So again, it doesn't like it wasn't like her personal laptop. It was just the family home computer that anyone could have Googled that on. And this is the weirdest. I had the hardest time understanding this piece of evidence which there was a heart-shaped outline found on the duct tape that was suspected to be over Kaylee's mouth, but they didn't take a photo of it, and then they subjected the duct tape to dye testing, and then when they went to go take another photo of it, it wasn't visible anymore. So it was just kind of like circumstantial. Um, and I don't actually understand what they were trying to do with that but then if it's I later heart found shape um, if it's heart <laughs> shape wow i can't speak heart shaped are they talking about like her lips then or was she like wearing something heart shaped that was around her mouth yeah so they think it was like a sticker that they found in her room that had just gotten stuck on the duct tape Oh, okay. Because there was a heart-shaped sticker found close to her body at the crime scene, and there's a oh. roll of similar heart-shaped stickers in her bedroom at the house, like at the mom and dad's house. Mm -hmm. So I think they're just trying to say that like this duct tape came from the house and like was put on her in the house kind of thing. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't I mean, like in fully her bedroom know. is when that transfer would have happened and yeah. ended up on her. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I have a lot of questions about this evidence <laughs> and I wish they would have taken a photo of it, but mm -hmm. alas. Um, so there was also a blanket at the crime scene that matched Kaylee's bedding at her grandparents' house, which was just another way to say it was Kaylee from her grandparents' house. Um, so a forensic entomologist testified that if there was a body in Casey's trunk, there should have been hundreds to thousands of blowflies trapped in there as well. And so the fact that there was no blowflies in her trunk, he was kind of saying like there was no body in there. But I feel like if you had a body in there and you didn't open your trunk, how would the blowflies get there? And then... If you took the body out and then cleaned the trunk, why would the blowflies stay there? Yeah, and I, I know would we think... did an entomology episode, so I was wondering if you could say anything, Nicole. Well, like the only thing I could think of is the way the only way that there would be no insect activity is if it was like middle of winter or if the body was like very much wrapped in something that would slow that process down. Mm -hmm. um, because otherwise, like, if she's just lying or if she's just been placed in the trunk, I could understand how there'd be insect activity. And sure, they could clean that as best as they could. But I'm also like, why would you just leave a body to decompose not like just on its own in a trunk? Yeah. Do it just like all of the variables don't add up or make sense. The way it's yeah. So explain. I have a question then for you. Yeah. 
Um, how would the flies get into the trunk then? Well, like, like my only thought would be through like the little nooks and crevices because cars, depending on like the they're car, they're not a completely enclosed system. Yeah, yeah. Like depending on the car model or whatever make, um, there's like safety latches in the trunk or like little headlight screw holes that kind of thing like i could i could oh, okay. see a little bug coming in one of those ways they like mm-hmm. they managed to get their way into every little nook and cranny yeah and then one but, flag like, just causes havoc yeah exactly and that's the only way i could see it like unless i could see the car and be like oh maybe here 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 and here um that's the only possibility i could think of yeah it was a pontiac sunfire if that is anything for you Okay, yeah. Like, the only thing that I could maybe think of is through vent systems. Okay. Or trunk latch mechanism, like, yeah, seals. I don't know, though. See. That's just speculation. Yes, so it's not completely impossible. Because I kind of thought that was, like, a massive claim. I was like, oh, okay, wow. Like, yeah, like, it could be, like, I'm obviously not an entomologist and it could very much be very impossible. It's just my limited understanding of how cars and bugs work. Like I would think (laughs) possibly, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Fair enough. Um, And so then we have a prosecution witness, John Dennis Bradley, who developed a software for computer investigations and it was used to indicate that Casey had searched the word chloroform 84 times and to suggest that she had planned this murder. However, he later found out that there was a flaw in the software that misread the data and that chloroform was searched only once. And the website that (laughs) had offered the information had chloroform like 84 times on it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so then... How do you get 84 from one? But no, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, that's my assumption at least. And so then the website was also the use of chloroform in the 19th century. So it was more of like a historical article than like a how to use chloroform to kill kind of thing. Um, and so it was later found out during the trial that Cindy Anthony admitted to being the one who searched it on the family computer. But at the time it was searched, her employment records show that she was at work. And we're not really sure what that's about. Um, cause neither her nor her employer were like, were you at home or were you at work? Like, why does your employment record say you were at work? If you say you were at home, like that seems kind of fishy. Um, so we actually don't know who searched that. It was never looked further into. No, that, oh, they had like her employer, I think like testify at the trial as well, just to kind of like say more, but from the information I found, they didn't really answer any questions. Okay. Like, yeah. So I don't really understand what that's about. And then um, George Anthony was actually the prosecution's first witness. And like one of the first questions he was asked was if he sexually abused his daughter. And he said no. Um, And then they asked him, did you have anything to do with moving Kaylee's body? And he said no. Um, And he also testified that he didn't smell anything in Casey's car that could be human decomp on June 24th, but then he did smell something that could be human decomp on July 15th, um, the day that Kaylee, or they reported Kaylee missing. So June 24th was the day that 
um, Casey threw the gas cans at him and um, all that happened. And Cindy Anthony testified that when she said the car smelled like someone died, she was using it as a figure of speech when she called on one. She didn't mean it literally. Um, oh. But again, that's like- a pretty... But like, why would yeah. you call nine one one over a really bad smell in your car if that was just a figure of speech? Well, yeah. she called nine one one because Kaylee had been missing for a month. But oh, then right. she said, "Yeah, she's like, yeah, my daughter's car smells like someone died in it." But it's like that's when your hmm. granddaughter's missing. That feels like a pretty literal term to use. I feel like if I'm describing really smelly things, and I've smelled some really smelly things. Mm-hmm. I I don't say oh this smells like a someone died or like this smells like a decomposing body like I may be like right? oh that smells like death but not like this is a decomposing body I smell or <laughs> like I just yeah even the the wording of it seems a little strange for me and it has to be a very 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 bad smell for me to be like ooh that's that's deathy because I don't yeah, know what exactly. death smells like I could be very wrong. It's kind of like it could have just been trash or like rotten meat that was in the like, trash bag it, that was in the trunk of her car. Yeah, I was going to say it could have been something kind of associated, but not the same. Uh, but, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so now we have police dog handlers. They actually testified as well. And so we have um, Jason Forgy, Forgy. He said that his dog, Jarrus, indicated a high alert of human decomposition in the trunk of Casey's car. And this dog's qualification was that he had real-world searches that would number 3,000. So they say he was very, very um, experienced. But I'm not sure if this was an exaggeration or not. Would this be like 3,000 criminal cases where he's scented bodies or is this like 3000 i'm in a park with my handler and we've buried like a vial of dead skin i have no idea okay because it feels like that would be really impressive for him to have 300 or sorry 3000 positive identifications of human decomp in real criminal cases like that would be very impressive so i hope that's it but i don't know (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so then Sergeant Kristen Brewer testified that her police dog Bones signaled decomp in the backyard of the Anthony home during the night or during the search uh, in July 2008. But when both dogs returned to the home for a second search, neither were able to detect decomp. And so Sergeant Brewer uh, explained that this was because whatever was in the yard had been moved or the odor had dissipated. And I'm not sure when the second search took place, if it was after they had removed Kaylee's uh, bones from the wooded area behind the house um, or not. And so then prosecution also called Chief Medical Examiner Jan Garavaglia to the stand, and she testified that she was the person to determine Kaylee's manner of death to be homicide and listed her death as uh, by undetermined means. Um, She talked about the chloroform evidence found by investigators inside of the trunk of the car and testified that only a small amount of chloroform is needed to kill a child. Um, And so then in kind of rebuttal to that, uh, the defense called a University of Florida professor and human identification laboratory director Michael Warren was brought on by prosecution to present an animation showing how the duct tape 
was used in the death of Kaylee Anthony. And so he superimposed Kaylee's skull over an image of her and then one of duct tape. And he kind of brought them together to show that the duct tape would have been over her mouth and nose. And so it was Warren's testimony that the duct tape found on Kaylee's body was put there before her body started decomposing. And the defense brought in two government witnesses to counter this testimony. And the first was that the the first was the chief investigator for the medical examiner, and he, they stated that the original placement of the duct tape wasn't clear and it could have been moved as he collected remains. And there was actually someone who testified. Oh, yeah, he's coming up here. So Cindy Anthony testified that they bury their pets in blankets and plastic bags with duct tapes over the opening um, in their backyard kind of thing. So it's upsetting that that was how Kaylee was found. Um, And the defense called forensic pathologist Dr. Werner Spitz, who performed a second autopsy on Kaylee and challenged Garavaglia's report. So Dr. Spitz said that it was um, not good that Garavaglia didn't open the skull during the first autopsy and that he was not comfortable ruling Kaylee's death a homicide. And he also said that the duct tape was placed there after she died and that someone may have staged the crime scene photos. So he was basically just saying, like, everything is wrong. Everything is fake. You're framing Casey. Um, It seems like a lot of work, though. Right? So, like, I also even just to frame crime scene photos, like, that's a whole department. And not to say it hasn't happened, because I'm sure shady shit's happened like that before. But, like... mm -hmm feel like this wouldn't be a case for that to happen well it kind of feels like he's just going nah that didn't happen to like everything there you're wrong take it back you're wrong (laughs) um i am confused why garavaglia didn't open kaylee's skull uh during the autopsy Um, But they did bring in, like, a forensic anthropologist to testify on why she wouldn't have done that. But I wasn't able to see why she wouldn't have done that. Um, So I'm sure that's out there if anyone wants to look into that. And now we get to the deliberation. So the jury began deliberating on July 5th. Um, prosecutors were about to give the jury corrected information about the software mentioned earlier, but the jury was done deliberating before they could actually give them the information because they only deliberated for 10 hours, which feels like a substantially small amount of time on a child murder case. Yeah, that doesn't seem right. Yeah. So on July 5th, 2011, Casey was found not guilty of first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, and aggravated manslaughter of a child. Um, If the jury had found her guilty, it could have been grounds for a mistrial because the jury hadn't received the corrected information about the software. Um, But she was found guilty of four misdemeanor counts of providing false information to a law enforcement officer, And sentencing discussions began on July 7th, and she was sentenced to one year in county jail and $1,000 in fines. She was given credit for her time served and was released 10 days later on July 17th, 2011. So she was not in jail for very long after the trial. And then on January 25th, 2013, two of her misdemeanor counts were overturned in a Florida court. So she was basically only like charged or um what's the word i'm looking for 
I don't know, but she had two misdemeanor courts that are charges on her counts. record. On her record. Plus the many like petty theft, fraudulent check charges, but like, but no murder oh. or Mm-mm. manslaughter. No murder, no child or- abuse, manslaughter, nothing. Okay. But like okay. there was no evidence for it, right? Like everything was back and forth. Yeah, I guess it's it's circumstantial. They can't even they agree have, on how. Yeah. yeah, they can't agree on how Kaylee died to begin with. So oh, how are they going to prove that someone killed her? Yeah. Well, yeah. But uh, okay, okay. Continue. <laughs> See, it's frustrating. <laughs> like, you have a dead child on your hands. Like you have evidence. You have the body. <laughs> like. Literally. Uh, anyway. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, where's Casey Anthony now? Um, in 2015, she started her own photography business and is an active photographer. She quite enjoys going out and taking pictures of things. In 2020, she started her own private investigator business, which is ironic. Um, but she didn't start to look into her case. She started because she wants to help other people who are facing serious legal issues. So, and then in 2022, she released a three-episode documentary that's only available on the streaming service Peacock, and it isn't available in Canada, which I'm devastated about because it looks so good. Um, But yeah, it seems like she's trying to live a normal life and move on from what happened in 2008, and we will actually never know if she killed her daughter or not. Because this is, I assume, no further investigation is going to happen. Like, the case they, is closed. Yeah. They deemed it not a homicide. They can't that really do so, anything. so frustrating. Oh, my God. Well, and Casey's a compulsive liar, right? So we don't know what she says is true. Yeah. Because she's so good at yeah. it. And there was actually a clip. I think I talk about it when I share my thoughts about this case. Um, <laughs> yeah. So she was telling investigators about Zenaida. She described where Zenaida lived, what floor she lived on, that there was a speed bump on the way to her house and that she had known her for four years at this point. And she just like doesn't even think about these things like as she says them. And in the podcast I was listening to about her, he like played a clip of her actually saying these things. And it just sounds like she's actually describing a place where she could live. And I was like, wow. Yeah. And so it's like how much of her ability to lie came from being sexually abused growing up or does she just like to lie? I think she just like, likes we don't to know. lie. Because I feel yeah. like um, compulsive lying isn't – I could be wrong. I don't know the statistics, but isn't a result of childhood sexual abuse. It could well, be. I don't know. Like yes and no. Like you – because you have to lie about the abuse, Right. Yeah, so but then when like, does it become compulsive lying, you know? And is that's that true. because of the abuse or is that because of a newfound joy in, like, lying and telling people the wrong thing? Like, exactly. creating a life for yourself, you know? Yeah, and I don't ever want to, like, say that abuse victims aren't victims. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, no, no. Ever. But, like, I have questions. In this uh, yeah, I as just very genuine, like, educational purposes. I would, I'd want to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I got most of this information from articles, but then I found clips from her documentary, which is called Where the Truth Lies. Oh. And they, like, compiled a, like, 20-minute, these are the most important clips kind of thing. Um, and so in the documentary, she says that on the day Kaylee went missing – 
her and Kaylee went to have a nap together. Casey was then woken up by her father asking where Kaylee was. And Casey and her father searched the whole house and couldn't find Kaylee. And then as she was coming around the side of the house, she saw her dad holding Kaylee, who was soaking wet. And so Casey broke down and said that Kaylee felt, quote, heavy and cold, end quote. And her dad said, don't worry, honey, like, I'll handle it. I have everything under control. Don't even worry about it. And then took Kaylee away from Casey. And so Casey tells the viewers that she doesn't believe Kaylee drowned in the pool because the ladder wasn't in it. So no one could actually like get into the pool because they had an above ground pool where the ladder oh, needed to get put in and out. Just fallen in, but that makes yeah. sense. So that's kind of one of the biggest things that like the defense is trying to be like, well, the ladder got set up or whatever. Um, and so Casey doesn't know why Kaylee would have been wet then, and she doesn't want to directly accuse her father of murder, but how else would Kaylee have gotten into the pool? Mm-hmm. And she, up until, she says that up until they found Kaylee's body, she believed that Kaylee was fine. She had no idea where her dad took Kaylee. What? And I'm like, ah, What? Like, I'm not a mother, so I can't. Your dad? Yeah, I'm not a mother, so I can't really speak to this. But I feel like if I hadn't seen my child for like a month, or my parents said, Mm -hmm. "I'm gonna deal with like, I'll handle it. Don't worry," and I just don't see my child, my baby again, I'd be like, "Mm, "What's going on?" Yeah, there'd be some big question marks. And so this part is kind of gross, but. Um, there's a point where she remembers being told that her father said, quote, he loved the sweet smell of Kaylee's sweat, end Ew. quote. And it caused, like, Casey to break down during recording because that was said at Kaylee's funeral, which Casey wasn't at. And another reason she broke down was because she said, quote, what better way to memorialize your granddaughter than, th- than to tell the world that you were abusing her too, end quote. I mean, and it so, could just be, like, a really creepy way. Because you know how, like, babies have a baby smell? Yeah, like, but that she was two just, years old. Yeah, like a newborn. Like a, yeah. Kids <laughs> smell like kids. I, yeah. Yeah. It could just be, like, a say. super uncomfortable way of portraying that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. But anyway, it's gross. And so she then says that she just did what her dad said. And after being manipulated and controlled by someone for so long, you just do what they say. So that's why she didn't do anything earlier. And she just kind of like went along with what her dad did. Um, And so I'll put the link to the video in our description and on our website because it's actually really interesting. Um, But yeah, so my last couple of thoughts is that this was so difficult to research because there was so much conflicting information because the world is so divided on whether or not she did it and no one will ever know for certain. And I hate that. No article I found mentioned when Kaylee died or how they determined time of death. Yeah. So time of death hasn't been touched upon. Date of death. They just say she died June 16th, 2008, but they like don't know how she died and they don't say like the circumstances. Like they don't expand on that. Okay. Which is weird. But yeah. So I will put the suicide note on our website and um, post a little snippet on our Instagram to catch your guys' attention. And um, that is all I have on Casey Anthony and the death of her daughter, Kaylee Anthony. Well, thank you. I really appreciate how in-depth you went into that because I honestly had no 
idea about anything. Like I knew there was a mother and a daughter, a trunk was involved and the mother mm-hmm. was never prosecuted or charged or whatever the fact, but yeah, I had the same understanding of it. I knew like her, like whether or not she did it is super heavily debated, yeah. but I never actually looked into like what she did. What was mm-hmm. the evidence? Like that was really mm-hmm. interesting. I'm glad to actually know that story now. Thanks. Yeah, Thank I definitely you. went into this being like, oh, yeah, Casey's guilty. And now I'm like, wow, I've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it could be really anyone in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you for that. Let's pass it on over to Rebecca now. And hopefully you can tell us a little bit bit, bit more about the aspect of the whole, it smells like a dead person in her car. Um So with that being said, Rebecca, would you like to tell us a little bit more? I would love to. So I think we all obviously have like an understanding of what odor is. Like it's just a smell. It's what we breathe in. It's how we distinguish things that might taste good versus bad without putting them in your mouth. Um, (laughs) So... Basically, just to kind of summarize it, odor is just another word for smell, and they are caused by very small amounts of volatile chemical compounds, uh, or VOCs, that float around in the air. And thanks to the olfactory nerve that we and pretty much every other animal has, when we breathe in these VOCs through the nose, they pass through our nasal cavities uh, membrane before attaching themselves to a scent receptor, which then allows us to distinguish one smell from another. So humans have around 400 types of smell receptors, uh, and not every VOC can attach to every receptor. So say to smell coffee, the VOCs from the coffee would need to find the corresponding receptor for the compound in our olfactory system and it are, sorry, enable for us to be able to smell it. So Even though we have around 400 varieties of smell receptors, on average, humans have around five to six million scent receptors in our noses in total. And I'm sure also we all know how commonly dogs we hear are being used for investigations um, because of their sense of smell. And it's for very good reason, because compared to humans with five to six million uh, smell receptors, dogs have over 100 million scent receptors in their nose. And some some dog breeds, such as bloodhounds, have 300 million. So their noses are way more in tuned uh, than humans, which is why we've always said that they have a much better sense of smell. And that's why we use them and not human noses for these investigations. I just so, remember when we were in forensic class and we had to do um, like... Uh presentations on this and one girl in our class said that and I was like oh my gosh that's crazy and I've been telling everyone I meet ever since (laughs) (laughs) well it is so crazy like we think we have good sense of smell with five to six million but they have over a hundred million like that is that's so hard to like understand I know I feel like that would just be overwhelming (laughs) to have that much smell (laughs) yeah yeah so that is Pretty crazy. Um, But with a brief understanding of exactly what causes odors and also how we perceive them, I wanted to move on more to what this topic is, which is odor analysis, as well as its history and its uses and its kind of drawbacks. So the use of odor analysis in forensics 
did technically start with the use of canines, which is why I went into that a little bit. Um, so the first recorded use of canines for general policing purposes was in 14th century France. However, this was only used to like guard docks and piers, so they weren't really used for their senses. Um, however, it wasn't too long after that. It was sometime in the late 14th century still that countries such as Scotland and England began to use bloodhounds to track down outlaws. So fast forward a few centuries, they're still being used in this capacity. Um, however, the first notable case of canines being used in investigations uh, had occurred. It was 1888 London when the London Metropolitan Metro... That's a we- I hate that word. Um, so it was 1888 London uh, when the London Metropolitan Police Force attempted to track down Jack the Ripper using bloodhounds uh, to try and track the scent of suspects based on the smells of the crime scene. So despite the fact that Jack the River Jack the Ripper was never actually caught, it was at this point that people really started to kind of see the benefits of using canines for investigations because it kind of, you know, it was, like I said, the first notable case of them being used. So it kind of hit the headlines pretty fast and kind of jump started research a little bit. So just a couple years after the Jack the Ripper case, in 1893, the first recorded case of canine evidence being admitted in court had occurred in Alabama when the Supreme Court of Alabama acknowledged that dogs, quote, dogs may be trained to follow the tracks of a human with considerable certainty and accuracy, unquote. So it was at this time that the court ruled that testimonies regarding the use of canines during investigation with regards to their scent uh, could be presented to a jury as a way to connect a defendant to a crime scene. Today, dogs are used still in all sorts of investigations, uh, like sniffing out drugs and following the scent of a missing person or leading investigators to location of human remains. However, I mean, again, with the whole hundred million scent receptors compared to humans, there's a reason that we trust dogs' sense of smell way more. And obviously a dog wouldn't be able to tell you what the scent of death is, but I'm sure maybe if they used canines for like, they maybe they give the canine like one of Kaylee's shirts and they sniff that out. And if they positively identify the trunk, I think that would have been better uh, evidence than saying it smelled like a decomposing body. <laughs> but uh, moving on from using dogs for odor detection, I wanted to get into the procedure that Journey had mentioned earlier that was used in Casey Anthony's case, uh, which was the laser induced breakdown spectroscopy or LIBS. So LIBS is a chemical analysis technology that, quote, uses a short laser pulse to create a microplasma on the sample surface, unquote. Uh, there's a couple direct quotes in this paragraph because I had no idea how to even summer or like reword them. So bear with me. Um so it says that it creates a microplasma. And just for reference, plasma is the fourth state of matter. So there's liquid, solid, gas. And then there's also plasma, which is kind of above gas. Um, and it is, quote, a gas that has been energized to the point that some of the electrons break free from but travel with their nucleus, unquote. So 
When the plasma begins to cool down after being created on the sample surface, the free electrons and ions that were created, uh, they cause the plasma to emit a light source. So using intensified CCD uh, spectrograph detector module, which they attached to the LIBS, um, and this long intensified CCD thing is basically just a really sensitive detector that uses... Um, Sorry, that's used to create um, wavelength charts of observable UV, visible, and near infrared. Um, so when this graph is created, it demonstrates the different wavelength peaks that are caused by the individual electrons and ions, and each wavelength peak is associated with a different element on the periodic table, which means that scientists can use this graph to see which elements are present in the plasma sample and also the concentration of each element. So as we know now that odor is certain chemical compounds, those chemical compounds would be found in trace amounts in the air, uh, and then the wavelengths just allow us to actually determine what chemicals are in the compound. So what, based on the research we have on certain odors, what composition is like, say, most closely related to a human body or most closely related to coffee? There's a really long winded way of saying that. I was so confused researching this today. <laughs> um, so as I was sort of just saying, in the case of Casey Anthony, Samples using the LIBS were taken from the air of the trunk and also the trunk carpet. Um, and according to the analysts, sorry, the an analysts conducting the test, the test had indicated that five of the key major compounds associated with human decomposition were present in the trunk. I couldn't find the specific five compounds uh, that the LIBS test had found, um, however, I did find that although the most reported volatile chemical compounds that result from decomposition are polysulfide compounds, um, the exact combination and concentration of VOCs that are associated with it have not actually yet been fully scientifically validated or confirmed. So basically, we know a lot of the compounds. Yes. Um yeah, I was just going to say, like, so do we know how many there are that they're taking the five out of? Like, is it a five out of five or like a five out of ten ratio? Yeah, so I wasn't able to actually find that. They said the most common okay. are polysulfide compounds, which leads me to believe that there are other ones. So I don't know yeah. the exact number. And also, okay. not even scientists right now have verified or validated how many there are and in what concentrations. So this doesn't seem like great evidence to me yeah. because these five could also be correlated to something else entirely that smells totally different or similar. Yeah. One of the um, witnesses, he's like, yeah, there is no, like he can't specify the compounds. He's like, there's nothing that makes up human decomposition that would be a part of this. Yes, exactly. Like it's, it feels like a junk science, at least at this time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like dog sense of smell and what they're used for. Love it. That works great. <laughs> but so far, man-made odor detection methods, humans just don't know enough about the scientific compounds to actually 
verify smells based on them. Yeah. Um, but one more that I'm going to talk about, uh, one of the odor analysis methods is actually the most common one used. Um, so this is called ion mobility spectrometry or IMS. However, I believe this wasn't used. Actually, I don't know why it wasn't used in Casey Anthony's case, um, but it is primarily used in the field for the detection of drugs and explosives. So I didn't find if it's been used for like human kind of compounds, but drugs and explosives are what this is best used for. So IMS works by detecting uh, VOCs as small as being in the parts per billion. So really, really small. And it works at atmospheric pressure, which is good because like we were saying earlier, how like taking air samples often uses a vacuum to kind of collect the air. Um, And it does this by applying an electric field to the sample, which separates the ions from the chemical compounds. And because every compound is different in their molecular weight, charge and geometry, the ions that separate from it during IMS kind of act as fingerprints of the compound, which is like human fingerprints, unique to each one. So then they're able to identify in that way how many or exactly what compounds this odor is made out of. I guess not odor in this case, but drugs and explosives. (laughs) So I have a question because I can't visually wrap my head around that. Um, So are they basically like sucking up all of the air and then fancy technology will be like, it has this, 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 in that sample I got pretty much. pretty yeah pretty much like do you remember okay. in forensics again I think it might have been forensic chemistry um and we did like drug sampling so we yeah, saw like, yeah, yeah. a chart Pops with a apology. wavelength or whatever so this kind of uses the same thing like I'm not positive how they actually like apply an electric field and all that but basically like they produce some sort of graph that tells you like exactly what this compound looks like and it's different say like oxygen is going to look different in a graph than hydrogen and all that sort of stuff so the smell of coffee i keep using coffee um but the smell of coffee is going to look very different than the smell of a decomposing body okay okay that makes sense in my brain thank you (laughs) no problem (laughs) So I'm going to move on from explaining some of the techniques used uh, because it's really jargony and I myself only have a half understanding. (laughs) Um, And it's also probably getting a little dry to listen to. So I wanted to talk about the drawbacks of odor analysis. And I'm sure we all kind of have some stuff to say about that. Um, But first off, it's that humans all perceive odor very differently like from person to person, uh, the smell of an orange could smell really different to me than it would to either of you. And it's because of this that we can't take statements such as the investigator, or sorry, the father who said the car smelled like death as fact, because the human nose and olfactory system just really cannot be trusted on its own. Again, dogs, they're fine. They got smart noses, but humans do not. (laughs) And this is why we have tests such as the LIBS or the IMS to kind of like back up those statements. However, we just simply don't know enough about these odors and exactly what they're made up of to actually make that of like any kind of credible use, in my opinion. 
And so another issue with odor analysis in a forensic investigation is that, like I mentioned earlier, and I've kind of beat a dead horse with this, um, but scientists really don't know the exact chemical composition of the odor of human decomposition. So, for example, when deciding whether or not to admit the odor analysis of Casey Anthony's car into evidence, the analyst who conducted the odor test on her car had found, like I said, five of the known compounds of decomp. Um, however, he also did a series of control tests to see whether the smell could be caused by something else and get similar results. And he found, uh, so he put a pizza in the trunk of the car and he found that the smell of a decomposing or like a leftover pizza gave off really, really similar results to that of the decomposing human remain test that they did. So basically it's, possible that the smell of a leftover pizza in the trunk could have been what they thought smelled like death because chemically they are similar which is kind of gross could they not have like i feel like the most logical explanation and example they could test was would be to put like old gas canisters in a trunk because i feel like a yeah. pizza example, sure, I can understand. You're testing everything to see what has similar um, VOCs. But I feel like with the way that the story was laid out and, you know, the facts of the crime, if gasoline's been in the trunk, that may – if that would be more compelling evidence to find out that, like, yeah, there are some shared VOCs between day-old gasoline and decomposing bodies. Like, obviously, it's not going to be the same 10 out of 10, say – but mm-hmm. they may share some similarities in that regard. Yeah, um, there was also like there was also a trash bag in the mm, trunk okay. of her car at some point, and it's it left a stain. I couldn't find any like expansion on that evidence, so I didn't include it. But okay. they also had to like test that stain to see what it was. So I feel like that trash bag is probably what they were smelling. Yeah, yeah. I find trash, trash can smell- get pretty rank. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Especially if you put like an old meat, like styrofoam container in it without and especially, leftovers. Mm. And especially if it's sitting in the trunk of a car on a summer day. In Florida. That's, yeah, in Florida. That's a fast way to make your garbage mm-hmm. probably smell like a dead body. Yeah. Well, there probably should have been blowflies in there too from if there's any leftovers. Yeah. Any True. form of activity. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah. So with all that being said, um, decomposing body equals leftover pizza. Yum. Uh, simply put, there's just too many things about too many odors that we don't have enough information on to conclusively say whether or not one smell is 100% what we actually believe it is as humans. There are so many chemical compounds and unique combinations of these compounds that produce vastly different smells. And there's just too many that we still haven't researched heavily enough to know their exact makeup. And honestly, until we can confidently distinguish, quote, the smell of death chemically from the smell of leftover pizza, I really, really don't think this should be admissible in courts. As at the time, it just feels like another, like we said, junk science that could easily be used to, like, incriminate innocent people. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Like, I feel like the use of canines to detect odor can be used as like supporting evidence, but I really don't think odor analysis should be used as like a key, key point in a case, you know? Absolutely. Like, it's kind of like dogs can be used, but they're not going to be held to the same yeah. uh, weight as like fingerprint or DNA. Yeah. So it's like, I definitely, and this being like a technically, I guess, hard science, because people created it, like, mm-hmm. we can't really control a dog, but we can control a machine. Yeah. And so, like, technically speaking, if we got this science down to a T, maybe it could be used mm-hmm. more more to the weight of, like, DNA or fingerprints. But at this time, like, I don't even think it should be at the weight of canine evidence. Yeah, what it is, mm-hmm. yeah. No, yeah, there needs to be that. so much more. Oh, sorry. There needs to be so much more research into it mm-hmm. that before we can even, I think, use this in court as evidence. Yeah, absolutely. I think it. Yeah, I think it has quite a long way to go right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And a Definitely. lot of people want to want to create the next analytical tool for it, but more people got to research the compounds in the smells. Exactly. Yeah, that needs to happen as well. Imagine how large that database would be, though, for each compound of each smell. Like, I guess you could take from um, perfume and I forget what the fancy term is for people who, like, create scents. But, like, you could definitely take um, uh, data from that. But I feel like mm, perfume companies aren't creating, like, dead people smells so you'd have to like integrate um known created smells with like natural smells and that just seems like a lot of work especially like you said rebecca like every person's smell differs yeah Yeah. and how do you even like sample like say you wanted to get like the chemical compounds of like a rose scent Mm -hmm. how do you put a rose in a completely uncontaminated area where there's no other air compounds that are going Mm -hmm. to impact what like vocs you can get from the rose yeah yeah the research and like science that goes into perfume making is pretty interesting i listened to a podcast on it i don't know the exact science behind it but like it is quite interesting to see what they can extract from certain things um yeah i bet i don't know how but how they do it (laughs) um but like it just kind of reminds me i heard something somewhere where they discussed how your sense of color could be like completely wrong it's just you've grown up knowing that i'm associating this color with this term blue but it could be, say, purple to someone else, but they've also just associated that as the title blue. So I feel like yeah. that could be the same with smells, too, because I've had it multiple times where I've walked into places and, like, I have a – I don't know why, but I have, like, a super hyperactive nose and sense of smell. So I'm always like, oh, like, do you smell that? Or, like, it smells like this. And people who I'm with are always like, mm, no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, or some scents like stand out to people because yeah. we had a customer come in at the coffee shop and the girl who was on till was like, oh my gosh, I love your perfume. She's like, oh my gosh, you can smell it. Like I went nose blind to it. And then like another girl was like, yeah, like it's something that just like stands out like red cabbage. They immediately can like smell mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and it smells like something bad to them, but like it smells like just regular things and it's like yeah. unnoticeable to someone else. Well, and it, it kind of makes me think of like, those true the traumatic early teen events that 
happened with alcohol. And then later down in the line, like if you're smelling the same tequila when you're, I don't know, like 30 years later and it makes you gag, like yeah, your brain associates then smells with certain events. So how is that going to differ from person to person, you know? Exactly. Or even just like after having COVID, like I'm still getting my like sense of smell back. Really? And so I'm still like, I'm noticing new things. I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't smelled that in so long. Wow. And so like, how how does that work? Like, yeah. I don't understand. To be a science that long and then come back. Yeah. 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 That's crazy. The science of smell is so much more fascinating than I ever thought it would be. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just one of those concepts that I like I know exists, but I will never ever be able to wrap my head around it. Oh, like there's same. just certain things that I will be like, um, I get it, but what? Like I really don't. Yeah, I yeah. completely agree. It's it's like taste and smell and hearing yeah. a little. I'm like, we hear vibrations and they make sense. Yeah. Like, what? Have you guys heard <laughs> of those new headphones that sit in yes. front of your ears? Yeah, it's like really? bone, bone yeah, what's it called? conductivity. My mom has Ooh. a pair and they work. It's insane. That is so cool. And she's been, so she's gone back to school for like medical transcriptionist. And she says that it's just so much clearer. And like you could hear all around you and everyone around you. And then you have these like vibrations coming in that <gasps> sound like audio. Oh, it's so cool. That, that is yeah. so, so cool. weird. But interesting but no, and cool. It's, <laughs> it's a bone and it's a piece of like tissue and boom, you have sound. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy. Right? Okay. I love so that. weird. But yeah, that's uh, that's all I really had to say about odor analysis. Admittedly, I spent way too long trying to figure out where to even start that conversation. Oh yeah. So I, I was like there's so much like we learned about it as a junk science, but then there's so many kinds of ways, but then there's also a history to it. And I'm like, do I talk about dogs? Like, <laughs> Haven't pigs been used sometimes as odor detection? Because I know pigs and truffles are a thing. Yeah, I'm not sure like the like how many receptors they have and stuff like that. But pigs have definitely been used in the past to detect certain odors. Like you said, truffles. But I think for bodies at some point as well yeah that's what i i remember whoever did the odor analysis presentation in class i think they touched on it yeah but i can't be certain um but yeah well thank you guys very much i don't think i have any more questions of discussion or points of discussion unless you guys do um so with that lovely discussion out of the way we i think are gonna and that here. Um, our next topic, we are covering the Craigslist killer and digital forensics. Um, I don't know anything about either, so that's going to be a fun ride for me. But um, I have a little bit of a joke. It's from, do you guys know what poopery is? Yes. Yes. Okay. So when I was looking up, because as our listeners have probably found out or realized, we don't think of any of our jokes. Um, we use the internet. <laughs> Sorry to break that to don't you. Don't tell them our secrets, Nicole. <laughs> okay, well, I use the internet because humor <laughs> is hard. <laughs> and bad humor is even harder um, when you're mm -hmm. not a father. Um, <laughs> so this one's from the Poopery website, and it says, Dad jokes, the real stinkers. Um <laughs> 
And this one is, what do you call a stinky lawyer? I don't know. Any guesses? Any guesses? I'm thinking really hard and I (laughs) don't know. Law and odor. (laughs) (laughs) That would do it. Knee slapper. That was... (laughs) Such a good one. Okay. That is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, um, Journey, where can people find us? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is at WT Forensics PC. We have a website where all of our sources and source images can be found, and that is at www.whattheforensics.ca. And we have an email, whatthefrenzix at gmail.com, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. Thank you. Um, be sure to give us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, we do love reading them, the very few that we get in, but it's always a fun moment for us. Um, and yeah, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it, as always, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm